Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. I am trying to be, I, I guess, undistracted, and I'm trying to find a quiet place here at the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City. I'm recording this podcast uh, here at a big trade show, and my guest has been on our podcast, I think, twice in the past, and he's such a source of information. It's hard to cover all the topics you want to cover, and uh, in this this one, I told Jim, Jim Heffelfinger, who is, I'm going to mangle what his term is, but I think he's the wildlife science coordinator uh, with Arizona Game and Fish. Uh, he takes the real science and with all of his immense background of research and hands-on experience, uh, he helps guide policy for Arizona Game and Fish. And one of the things he's, I'm going to say, in charge of, Jim might straighten me out on this, is you may have heard about the Mexican wolf reintroduction. Uh, he is the person who represents Arizona Game and Fish in that activity and in those uh, discussions. Uh, he's always quick to point out that he has a great crew of people that work with him, and I would agree with that. So when I, I point a lot of this at Jim, uh, he's going to always widen it up to say, yeah, but I have all these other great people working for me. So... Uh, we're going to have a discussion about Mexican wolves uh, reintroducing uh, lar large carnivore-type species across large landscapes, the challenges it creates, uh, and whether or not uh, the, the path of the Mexican wolf reintroduction is going to follow what happened up in the northern Rockies with the gray wolf or if there's lessons that were learned and maybe that'll be to some benefit as the Mexican wolf reintroduction continues down its path. So, But before we, we turn on the, the switch here and get Jim on the podcast, I want to quickly thank Leupold for being the title sponsor of this podcast. Uh, they got a booth right over there with all their great 2019 optics. Uh, and if you're not able to go see them at a booth, hope you'll check them out at a retailer or online at leupold.com. We also have Orion Coolers. Uh, go to oriancoolers.com. Pick out the greatest coolers you could ever find and use promo code RANDY and save yourself 20% on that cooler. Uh, I know here in the wintertime, our minds probably aren't thinking about keeping stuff cold, but it, it will be with, with uh, uh, maybe not soon enough for some of us here living in the North Country. Uh, summer will be here, uh, and then we'll be thinking about coolers. Go to OrionCoolers.com. Use that promo code RANDY and save 20%. And then we have Onyx Maps. Uh, man, now that uh, we know a few tags that we have for the upcoming 2019 season, I'm just about wearing out the keyboards and monitors uh, doing my e-scouting with Onyx. Um, I just try to put my mind back to the pre-Onyx map days, and I <laughs> I really can't do it. I, I, it's just so critical to everything we do with our scouting, even our tag applications, but surely when we're in the field, having the app downloaded on our phones is, is just 
priceless for us. So go to onyxmaps.com, download and purchase some of that products. And when you use promo code Randy, you're going to save 20%. Uh, And uh, I can assure you it will be some of the best money that you spend. And right now, I'm recording this podcast from the booth of GoHunt.com. They have a booth here at this trade show. And I've got a few chairs propped up here in one corner of their booth. And uh, you know that we've been using their their service. Uh, the, The thing I love about GoHunt, uh, their insider service lets you kind of be your own researcher, your own hunting consultant. You you have all this information at your fingertips. You're not relying on somebody saying, oh, this unit or that unit or whatever. You're doing your own research. You're customizing what you want out of a hunt, uh, what fits your schedule, what fits your budget. It's just an unbelievable amount of information there. They have their strategy articles. They have the best draw odds that anybody puts out. Uh, so go to gohunt.com, sign up for the insider. We're still in the middle of application season. You'll get a ton of benefit out of it. And when you use promo code Randy, R-A-N-D-Y, they're going to give you $50 of free credit of mad money to spend in their gear shop. And that's a serious gear shop. So that's one part of their offer to all of our listeners. The other part is once you do that, uh, I got to make sure I point these out as two different transactions. You've got your $50 just store credit, go spend that and uh, get, you know, $50 off whatever it is you want. Then in other transactions, uh, out in their gear shop. If you use promo code Randy when you check out, uh, you'll get 10% off everything you buy other than optics. And with optics, you'll get 5% off just by using promo code Randy when you check out of the gear shop. But you can't combine that with the $50 free credit. So just so you know. And with that, uh, hopefully we've made it worth your while to listen to our podcast. And now I'm going to hit the switch here and our good friend, Jim Heffelfinger from Arizona Game and Fish is going to be talking about the ESA Mexican wolves and all things related to, uh, restoring and introducing and recovering species on large landscapes. Hold on. Here we go. All right, folks. I told you that here at the Western hunting expo, the man himself, the expert, the author of Deer of the Southwest, prior podcast guest, Jim Heffelfinger, who, if you watched some of our YouTube content from Arizona this year, you saw Jim in there. He gave me instructions on how to do the gutless method on an antelope jackrabbit. He was there when I shot a, a javelina. Jim, you're just, you're everywhere. Yeah, that was, that was a gross oversell. <laughs> I had a great time down there two days, uh, the first two days of uh, your multi-day hunt there and, and lucked out and, and having a day that you were productive. Yeah. Double, double hit. Before we jump into the topic at hand, is it possible to over-exploit coos whitetail by hunting them with a bow? No, not definitely not with a bow for sure. Yeah. I've even, I've even said in the past at times that because of the rugged, brushy nature where they live and, and so much of that habitat more than a mile from a road, it would be really difficult to overexploit. Now everybody's got a different definition of overexploit. Right. You would lower the age structure for sure if you did that with rifles, but it would be awful hard to do any real biological damage to the population. You'd have young age structure, wide buck to doe ratios, but 
I don't. I don't think you'd impact the number of deer on the landscape. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that makes me feel better because yeah. so far I'm not doing anything to help you guys with your management plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've I've already and I've had and you have too. People talk about. Um, oh, you can't tell all those people to come down here and hunt. But the two days I was out with you, I think we saw two people in vehicles that were quail hunting. Yeah. And I don't know if we saw another archer. Never, I mean, never, it, it just, never saw one single, not not a single archery hunter while we were yep. there. And we saw a lot of deer moving around. Of course, we were hitting the peak of rut, but a lot of deer right. moving around. So there's yeah. a lot of resource out there, and, and they're not anywhere near being overexploited in that archery season. Yeah, and uh, it's not like the quality of the hunt is being compromised because of yeah. so many people in the field. Right, yeah, and, so. and even since those archery hunts are after all of our rifle hunts, all of those bucks we saw and all those mature bucks we saw there, I mean, it tells you that we're not overexploiting overall with rifle hunts before that, right. too. No, not at all. But I just wanted to get that out there because yep. I get a lot of flack about and, and I don't give specific units. I'm like, oh, we're mm-hmm. somewhere in southern Arizona. Mm-hmm. But, man, since we put that on YouTube, the number of people who said, oh, you're ruining every spot. You're ruining every spot. I'm like, huh, okay. Nope. There's <laughs> a lot of spots like that in southern Arizona. So pick your spot. Yeah. So we're going to talk about, you call them toothy critters? Big toothy critters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Jim is in charge. Uh, I'm going to say this. You can correct me. But Jim is the guy for Arizona Game and Fish who's in charge of the Mexican wolf reintroduction as far as representing the interest of the state of Arizona. Right, in recovery planning. We've got a whole bunch of people that are on the ground. In fact, they're doing right now, they're doing the year-end survey, and they're tranquilizing animals and capturing animals, radio-coloring animals, so we can continue to monitor the wolves around the ground. So a whole bunch of people doing all of the cool stuff. I've been real involved in the last eight years in all of the recovery planning and talking about what what does wolf recovery look like and trying to craft um, recovery plans and recovery criteria that make sense, that are, that are doable. So you get to deal with, on a daily basis, what I dealt with from 1995 until about 2011 when we congressionally delisted wolves in mm-hmm. Montana. So I don't want you to be in a hot spot or say anything that is going to cause your supervisor to say, Jim, come here, we got to have a talk about this. But the complications of managing a landscape and other populations and the political and social dynamics of toothy critters, as you call them, is very, very complicated. It, it, it is complex. People always want to look to at Yellowstone, and that's a whole story in itself, but we don't have big blocks of protected lands in other parts of the country. And so we're going to have to learn if we're going to recover these these uh, big toothy critters that are endangered, and we're going to recover those and bring it back on the landscape. We have to understand that they're not going to be everywhere. A recovery of wolves and recovery of grizzly bears is different than restoration. So some people talk about restoration, and that's restoring them everywhere they were, where they were. Well, that's not what the Endangered Species Act tells us to do, right. and, and legally and and ethically, we can't do that. There's a lot of other landscape changes that we've had in the last 100 years. And we manage, as wildlife agencies, we manage native wildlife. And wolves and grizzly bears are native wildlife, but so are elk and deer. And so we have to manage all of those and not put a few of them up on a pedestal and, and try to get as many of those as possible and ignore all of the other animals that they may impact negatively. Yeah, so in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, the deal struck, <clears throat> and I'm going to simplify here, but... It was 
in, reintroduced as a, they called it a, uh, an experimental non-essential population. Mm-hmm. And is that the same classification you guys have with your Mexican wolves? We do, yep. You do? Yep. Oh, yeah, okay. Arizona and New Mexico is experimental non-essential. And, and that just, that just defined, you define an area, and then you say, within this area, we're going we're gonna to recover those animals, but there, there's more management flexibility, meaning that if you have uh, a, a number of wolves on the ground, they're still endangered, you've got one individual wolf that just keeps killing cattle. It's just a bad apple. That, 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 it's called uh, the, the experimental non-essential. It's a 10J, 10J area because it's a yeah. 10J section of the, of the Endangered Species Act. That allows you to go in and remove that one problem uh, individual. And you can remove it lethally. You can remove it back into captivity. In the case of uh, Mexican wolves, we do both. And you remove that animal. And then what you do is you, you save this, this groundswell of social discontent. If there's one bad wolf and he keeps doing bad things and you leave him on the landscape, all you're doing is fomenting all of this negative attitude about wolves and people hear about this one wolf. And, and if you remove that animal and let the other wild wolves be wild wolves and not be in trouble, you can, you can garner and maintain some tolerance for those animals on the landscape. And that's really important because the experimental non-essential uh, designation isn't used for butterflies and things that don't get into trouble, don't conflict with what we like to do. But if you've got animals that are in conflict with landowners and, and, um, and other native wildlife, that gives us some flexibility to, to actually recover them, whereas we wouldn't if they were fully endangered. Got it. So just so people understand, this whole process, and uh, I know people get frustrated with the ESA. Uh, I do. I, I get frustrated with some of the other tools that groups use to kind of gum up the works with the ESA. But the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is, I'll call, the umbrella agency working with all the states. Right. Am I right. saying that right? Yeah, they have the, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service for terrestrial animals. There's, there's also NOAA, which does some of the marine stuff. But terrestrial animals, we normally talk about it. Fish and Wildlife Service is the lead agency for endangered species. But there's a Section 6 part of the Endangered Species Act that requires them to work with the state agencies. And that, that connection of the state agencies being involved in recovery has really been eroded over the last several decades. And, and, and the hope really is that you can get state agencies and states, because they're the ones on the ground managing all the other native wildlife that's not endangered. The state agency have to be directly involved and not marginalized as stakeholders. Um, right. And with the Mexican wolf process, that was really done in the last few years as the states were brought in and really treated as conservation partners to craft a recovery plan. And, and that, unfortunately, has been kind of unique with these controversial species, yeah. to have the states really helping bring the science to the table and things like that. So do you think some of the lessons we learned in the Northern Rockies, uh, as painful as some of those were, has that been helpful as you guys have moved forward? It's been uh, helpful and not helpful. Um, (laughs) It's been helpful because we could see some of the, some of the things that we want to avoid. But one thing that the whole Northern Rockies experience were wolf populations, they set recovery criteria for the Northern Rockies. And they said, when they get to this level, we're going to delist them, take them off the endangered species list, and manage them with native wildlife. And then wolves' population grew to five times that level, and there were still lawsuits saying, don't delist them, don't delist them. That experience there made everybody in the Southwest really nervous and, and really dismissive of the recovery criteria we were trying to craft. So I've been working hard to craft some criteria that said when Mexican wolves get to this level, we can delist them and they'll no longer be in danger of extinction. And people said, well, yeah, we saw how well that worked in the Northern Rockies. We were five times that level. So it doesn't really matter what you put on paper or what kind of numbers you pick. We're going to blow 
way past that. And realistically, we, we know we probably will because of lawsuits and other things. But I think the lessons learned in the Northern Rockies will help us. And they did help us craft criteria more carefully so that it wasn't so weaselly and open and wishy-washy where lawyers could, could keep suing, where it was a little better defined the way we did it. So with that in mind, the, the thought that we're going to have trouble probably delisting them when they're no longer in danger of extinction. Right. Because in the Northern Rockies, the, the deal was struck. The states, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, said, all right, we, we guarantee you that we'll get past 100 wolves and 10 breeding pairs in each of the three states. And if we get past there and that and we get delisted, if we get to down as low as 150 wolves and 15 breeding pairs, you can come in and relist or take mm -hmm. over. Mm -hmm. right. So, yeah, right now in Montana, we're running between six and 700 wolves as the minimum population estimate. Mm -hmm. So you being right. a biologist, minimum population estimate says that means within some comfort level, some 90% confidence level, we know it's at least this number. Yes. Am I saying that right? Right, right. Because and, with a species like that that's endangered, and you're talking about whether it comes off the endangered species list, we're very conservative. Everybody's very conservative about numbers because you don't want anybody criticizing and saying, well, your, your counting is flawed and you probably have way less than that. You want people to be pretty much in agreement that, yeah, that's a minimum number. And because of the way you counted them, we're pretty confident you've got at least that number. And probably... A, a good number more than that that we really don't know about. And it's the same with Mexican wolves is we do a count every year, but that count is the, the number of wolves that we've documented. And we know there's a lot of evidence that shows us that there's other wolves out there that we don't know about. Right. And so it's absolutely a minimum number on the landscape. Yeah. So in that then in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, we, the biologists and the scientists said, we think you're going to meet your delisting criteria around 2001. They were dead on accurate. <laughs> yeah. And so we had to meet that 100 wolves, 10 breeding pairs, three years in a row. We did. They say, all right, you states start putting together your management plans. We're going to hand control over to you upon approval of your plans. And I'm summarizing. That's the way here. it's supposed to work. And so we go through that process. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says, yeah, these plans will work. They approve them and instantly they're in court. Lawsuits drop. Right. So Usually I, the same day because the groups are planning on it and their <laughs> lawyers have already written the lawsuits. Right. So we were in court on those plans from 2004 to 2011. Mm -hmm. And I, I bring this up because so many times I hear people say, oh, the federal government crammed those down the throat. Federal government this, federal government that. Well, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is on our side when right. they issue a delisting rule. They delisted them. They said they, they're recovered. Yeah. And, and so they're the ones getting sued. Yeah. If right. you want to be mad at somebody, be mad at the federal judge who, yeah. who agreed with the, the litigators yep. that, oh, yeah, all these deals we yeah. made, all this science, ah, disregard that. I, I yeah. want full restoration back to your right. point of, so. That's not enough. Right. Yeah, 5,000 wolves and groups are suing that they're somehow in danger of extinction. And it's just ridiculous. Yeah. So the, the point of all that is no matter how good of a plan you draft in it, I remember sitting in those meetings, listening to all these debates and back and forth of the three state wildlife agencies pushing back with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I thought, you know, this is probably going to work. I had no idea the amount of interpretation yeah, right. and latitude given to judges to say, yeah, you scientists, people, you guys might be the best grizzly bear biologists in the world. You might be the best wolf biologists in the world, but... 
I'm thinking full restoration is mm-hmm. what the ESA was designed yeah. for. And I don't know. Are, are they going to wait until we have grizzly bears in Cleveland before? <laughs> They've got them in egg fields, apparently, out rolling around. Someone yeah. told me today that someone had to shut down. I don't know what state it was. They had to shut down a corn maze this fall because there was a grizzly running around in the really? corn maze. So uh, that's, that's never good. Yeah. But, but, but gee, definitely, sure. we try to craft these cr- criteria to be, and, and that's the thing we learned with Mexican wolves, craft it so it was very well defined and crystal clear and obvious when we got to that point. Not some wishy-washy criteria about genetic diversity will be 10% higher than this where you can, you can interpret it a hundred different ways or you can measure genetic diversity seven different ways and whichever one suits you, that's the one they'll sue on. So. Right. And so in the, the grizzly bear, we see it. And in the gray wolf, we saw it. They try to expand what the recovery area should be when they litigate. Are you guys, is that same effort underway? We, with we the- did, we supported an expansion because we had a relatively small area that we started recovering wolves because at one time in 1982, when they wrote the recovery plan for Mexican wolves, they said, we don't think Mexican wolves can be recovered. We, you know, maybe if we had a hundred somewhere in the wild, we'd consider that a success, but not recovery. And, and they did pretty well. They started a captive program. They did pretty well in that little area. And we realized there's no way you're going to really recover Mexican wolves in this fairly small area on the Arizona, New Mexico border. And because that small area was the 10J or the experimental non-essential area, any wolves that traveled out of that area were then considered fully endangered. And we don't have that management flexibility to to deal with problem animals. And so we expanded that 10J non-essential area all the way down to the Mexican border and then all the way across southern Arizona and New Mexico. And and some people saw that as, oh, now they're expanding the area where wolves are going to be. But it's really the opposite. It expanded the area that gave us management flexibility to manage wolves as they were being recovered. So it really was a thing to give us more uh, more uh, power to do things that needed to be done to bring wolves back without negatively impacting native game or livestock. So these Mexican wolves, just to give me the overview of how they differ from a gray wolf I see right? in the northern The, the Mexican wolf, you know, a lot of wolf subspecies are really, you couldn't, you couldn't define any characteristics to tell some... Really? Apart from others, there's five wolf subspecies around um, North America. It's been shrunk. We used to have 24 subspecies, <laughs> and it's been shrunk down to five that that really? are, are probably ecologically different. All of the other ones, it'd be difficult to to list any criteria to tell them different. Mexican wolves are are definitely different. Mexican wolves evolved in this peninsula of mountains down into Mexico, so the Sierra Madre Mountains in central Mexico, and and they were just really a Mexican subspecies. That's why they're called the Mexican wolf. And they interchanged a little bit of that northern tip through central Arizona, central New Mexico with some of the bigger wolves that were in the plains and the southern Rockies. But they're, they're visibly smaller. They're genetically different. They're, they're physically about 60%, 70% of the size of a northern wolf. And, and ecologically, they're different because they evolve eating cows, white-tailed deer, and turkeys, and jackrabbits. Really? Um, that's their primary food source? So a smaller, more diverse diet in Mexico for Mexican wolves. So the Mexican wolf really is different looking, different genetically, and different in the way that it evolved. And so some of some of advocating recovering the Mexican wolf in Utah and Colorado so right. they can eat I elk. I heard that. Yeah, I heard that. But, but that's completely unlike the environment that the Mexican wolf evolved in. So now you're taking a Mexican wolf and you're trying to force it to grow into some larger wolf. And to many of us, that's not recovering the Mexican wolf. The Mexican wolf is this iconic small wolf species, subspecies from Mexico. Huh. So I've read where 
a lot of people are advocating, oh, we want Southern Colorado, mm -hmm. we want Southern Utah to be part of the expanded range for Mexican wolves. Yep. And that's so for one, if you recovered them there, you'd have these larger wolves. After a few generations of eating elk and running around in the snow, they would they would gradually evolve into a, a, a larger bodied wolf, really in not too many generations. And so now we have this big wolf running around in the Rocky Mount, Southern Rocky Mountains through the snow, eating elk. Is that the Mexican wolf, the El Lobo of the Southwest? Many no. of us don't think so. It, it was listed as a separate subspecies to recover as a separate subspecies because it was a unique little entity. And, and, and so we should be recovering it as, as it was listed as the, the Mexican wolf. And the biggest problem with trying to go to Utah or Colorado is the fact that if we had, say, in the Grand Canyon area, we had Mexican wolves that we tried to recover there, we've already had Yellowstone wolves and northern right. wolves come down to the Grand Canyon and come down into northern New Mexico in the southern Rockies. So very quickly, we'd have these big wolves from the Rocky Mountains, which aren't even Rocky Mountain wolves. They came originally from mid-Canada. Right. So we basically got these mid-Canada wolves making it down into the Mexican wolf recovery areas, and, and they would certainly dominate a breeding position right away because they're so much bigger. Right. And so they dominate a breeding position, uh, position. They'd have a litter of pups. Those pups would grow up much larger than the other Mexican wolves. They would spawn off and dominate breeding positions. And, and you would have a, a, a pretty... Uh, a, a a pretty obvious sweep of Canadian wolf genetics through a small recovering Mexican wolf population. And, and we can't have that. That's not recovering the Mexican wolf that yeah. we're, we're obligated to do. And so gradually northern wolves in the northern Rockies and Mexican wolves in Mexico and southern Arizona will interchange, but we can't let that happen until Mexican wolf population grows to a big enough size that they're, they're healthy and recovered by themselves. And then the interchange there won't be a bad thing. But when you got these small nucleus of Mexican wolves, just one Canadian wolf coming into that is bad news. Huh. <laughs> so what some people would be asking for is actually, in the long term, detrimental. And maybe not even long term. You know, some people advocating for recovering Mexican wolves in southern Colorado and in, in the Utah-Arizona border, they're advocating, in my opinion, for the destruction of the Mexican wolf genetically. Because of the fact Because of northern wolves one. coming down and then having this bigger wolf in the Southern Rockies that's not the Mexican wolf that everybody thought of when it was originally listed. Ah, so right now it's Arizona and New Mexico are in this partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Mm -hmm. What about old Mexico, the country of Mexico itself? Yeah. Are they part of the equation? Yeah, when we put the recovery plan together, we had uh, six workshops. Two of those we held in Mexico and, and had some high-level uh, Mexican uh, officials that were involved in the leads for Mexican wolf, not Mexican wolf recovery, but the leads for endangered species in Mexico. And so they were at the meetings with us. And at one meeting, one of the officials who was in a high level um, to have some authority said that we're concerned in Mexico with three endangered species. Our priority species are the monarch butterfly, the vaquita, which is a little dolphin in the Sea of Cortez, and the, and the Mexican wolf. So they're prioritizing the Mexican wolf and, and interested in recovering the Mexican wolf in, in areas. And so the recovery plan has one area in Arizona, New Mexico, which where the wolves are now, that we need more wolves in before they're recovered. But another, uh, the Mexico is a second recovery area. And we've done an analysis of Mexican wolf habitat in Mexico and, and southeastern or southwestern U.S. And, and there's plenty of available, good, suitable, high-quality habitat to recover the Mexican wolf in historic range. So we don't need to go north of where they were historically. Would geographically, would the majority of their native habitat be in old Mexico? Uh, originally, 90% of the historical range of the Mexican wolf was in Mexico. And so advocating that, that all of wolf recovery occur 
not even in that 10%, but north of that 10%. just doesn't make any sense. And so as far as the numbers of wolves, the recovery plan calls for 320 in the U.S. and Arizona and, and New Mexico, and at least 200 in Mexico. So we split the difference. It's not, it's not half and half, but we've got a little bit more in, in uh, Arizona where we've got a, a head start. But Mexico's been re releasing wolves in the wild since 2011. They've got one, one pair that has produced at least five consecutive litters in the wild wow. each year. And we've got some of those early pups that have matured and, and dispersed as juveniles and hooked up with other juveniles that disperse from other packs and have formed their own, their nucleus of their, their own packs. And so, so they're, they're much, they're farther behind us and they don't have as much funding and support as we have here, but the states and the Fish and Wildlife Service are working with Mexico, uh, working really hard um, to help them recover the wolf. So we're all working as a team. It's not like we're doing it here and whatever happens in Mexico happens. We're all, we've been down, I've been down to Mexico three or four times in the last three years, specifically talking about Mexican wolf recovery with biologists that in some cases have been working on Mexican wolves in Mexico for 10, 15, and even more years. Huh. So they eat, the majority of what they eat, coos whitetail, cows whitetail. Yep. Jackrabbits mm -hmm. and turkeys. And turkeys. So yep. what's their impact on elk? Impact on elk, we haven't detected any impact on elk so far in Arizona and New Mexico. And that's, we're just embarking on a new study uh, that's going to radio collar a bunch of elk, a bunch of elk calves, and then we already have the radio collared wolves. And we're going to be able to study some interaction, study the, what we call cause-specific mortality on elk calves. So what's killing the elk calves? And we've got study areas in the heart of where wolves are and study areas that are outside of where wolves are. And so we're just starting, we're just this year going to be collaring those, those elk. So we're going, to, we're going to learn about that because we have to know if sometime in the future we have a dry year and elk recruitment, the number of, of calves that are born goes down, People are going to start blaming, blaming wolves for it right away. But we need to have the science that tells us what's really happening. And, and we're, we're trying to position ourselves to do that. So this recovery area in New Mexico, is it safe to say it's south of Highway 60 mostly? And it's... In New Mexico? Yeah, in, in New Mexico. Yeah, it's all south of I-40. Um, going I across okay. I-40 is north of where the historical range really was, but we've that's a, a well-defined boundary, and so the 10J area stops at at uh, I-40. So, so the area is the Mugion Rim and the Gila National Forest in central Arizona, New Mexico. Cool. I I hope that I, I and when I say cool, what I mean by that is to hear that you guys are. I. I get the sense you're being more proactive. Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, I think that they trusted. And we, at the time, there was no evidence to say don't trust. Mm -hmm. But I think right now, if you came to the citizens of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming and said we want to reintroduce another species, I don't think you, you would have enough love or money to talk them into <laughs> it because of how... I don't know what term you want to use. Neglected, abused, taken advantage of, whatever the term is... Uh, which to me, in the long term of conservation, that's the truth. That's a mm -hmm. tragedy to have right. this, yeah. this conservation ethic that the, the citizens of these three states had and squander it through litigation. Right. And I think those groups that were litigating uh, in the northern Rockies probably didn't really understand the long game and the fact that they let that population, through their lawsuits, they let that population and advocated that population get five times the recovery criteria. They probably didn't foresee that when we tried to recover Mexican wolves, that everybody was going to look at that as, as an example of, and there was going to be so much negative um, 
negative feelings about wolf recovery because of what happened in the Northern Rockies. Whereas if we had just got up to those levels a little bit farther above for a buffer, delisted them in the Northern Rockies, there wouldn't be near the distrust and hate and discontent in the Southwest. There'd be, I think, much more acceptance to recovering Mexican wolves, which is what we want to do back on the landscape in the Southwest. I think people might have seen that as a success story in the Northern Rockies and then said, well, we could probably reproduce that here. But instead, they saw that as a disaster in the Northern Rockies, and they didn't want to have any part of it. The ranching community didn't want to have any part of it in the Southwest. And that's unfortunate because we can recover these controversial species in a way that everybody and nobody gets, nobody gets uh, unnecessarily and uh, uh, impacted, whether it's native wildlife or livestock operators. We can do it in a smart way on a working landscape if, if, we, if we just pay attention and, and you know, not let them get way above what the science says that is recovery. Yeah, well, I I hope you guys have all the luck in the world trying to keep it out of the courts, Jim, but mm. I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if there's a sports book down in Vegas that is putting odds on whether or not you guys are going to get litigated or not get litigated. No, we will. I don't know what the over-under is or what the point spread <laughs> is or whatever, but I'm taking that bet. You want in on it, yeah. <laughs> no, we, we absolutely will get sued, and, and there'll be multiple lawsuits about everything people can try to sue to get what they want. And that's, that's why when we were crafting the recovery criteria, we had that very much in mind, and that let's make sure that these criteria are in such a way that they – they can't be interpreted any more than they absolutely have to be. And so we tried to nail everything down to be very specific. So when we hit that, nobody could go into court and some judge could say, well, it doesn't quite look like you've hit that threshold. It'll be obvious when we hit that threshold or not. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I, I really am. Because I look at the amount of money state agencies end up having to contribute towards management of these species and state agencies aren't like the federal government where they can just go print more money yeah right you guys have budgets mm -hmm. a big part of your budgets are funded by hunters right and other users i'm i know there have been times where the pressure got really intense on the budgetary costs of this where sometimes congress would throw some money to the states for mm -hmm. wolves and grizzly bears but it's never enough to, right. oh, to do it, it. It costs a lot of money to recover these animals because the monitoring has to be intensive so that we know what's going on out there. If you've got these specific recovery criteria, you've got to know where your population is in relation to those recovery criteria. And, and we don't have any delusions that because we wrote um, better defined recovery criteria that somehow this is all going to, they're going to reach that level and they're going to be delisted. It won't. It'll be a battle. But if you start with a good scientific foundation, you can always come back to that scientific foundation and argue at that scientific foundation once we get to that point. Well, I, in Montana, where I live, the way it happened is we had a Republican congressman from Idaho who'd had enough of it, and we had a Democratic senator from Montana who'd had enough of mm -hmm. it. And you think about how messed up a process gets through all these lawsuits if you have to congressionally intervene. That, yeah, that's bad. To the science of the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, but, as a, from a wildlife biology standpoint, you don't ever want politicians making decisions on whether something listed or not, but that's... That's what happens when you get five times the recovery criteria and people just get fed up and they step in with these pretty draconian and, and, and unheard of measures. I mean, we as scientists need to be able to figure that out before it gets to that point. Well, I hope you guys don't get to that point. Yeah. But I, 
I know that you will have people in your constituency. You'll have hunters, ranchers, people who are concerned about science. You'll have those groups like I would be if I lived in Arizona or New Mexico, where about the fifth or sixth lawsuit that you, okay, we prevailed there. Okay, now they got another different little angle. Okay, we prevailed there. Okay, another, because none of these lawsuits happen in a week. It just, right. part of that is just the, the drag, the drag, keep yep. it, keep it extended. And it's not like the wolves say, oh, we're going to quit breeding while the lawsuits <laughs> right. are, are underway. And that's and how you, they keep going. Yeah. And that's how you end up with this five X, what the recovery population mm -hmm. is. And yep. I, in Montana, it's very seldom I run into somebody who doesn't agree that, Hey, you know, wolves have a place on the landscape. Grizzly bears have a place on the landscape, mm -hmm. but we <laughs> in a we, managed and moderate way on a working landscape. Yeah, we sure. want our state agency to be managing them, not the courts, not the judges, forcing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to do something that I, I put myself in the position. If I was a biologist or a scientist or a project leader for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and I had to go up and, and get up and go to work every day and say, "Look, I'm I've done everything you want me to do." You want me to make it up? What 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 do I have to do to make you happy? I, we, we've gathered all the best available science and put it into it. And, but the evidence in a court of law is much different than scientific evidence. There are right. different rules. And, and many times these court rulings are based on process and procedure errors and, and deadlines and things that have nothing to do with whether they're actually still endangered or not. Yeah. Wow. And that's unfortunate. Loopholes. I, I, I'm... Uh, I, I'm thankful because I know you and I, I know how detailed you are and how smart you are. I'm thankful you are representing Arizona in this. And it's, yeah. And it's not only me. There's a, but when we right. were getting together, writing a recovery plan, we had Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico together, and they were at every one of those workshops okay. and all of us worked together and, and brought some really solid science to the table that didn't exist. But we said, Hey, we need to pull this together and that together. We need to do this analysis. Why aren't we updating that analysis? And we updated all this older analysis, and it wasn't all me. It's just that you're, I'm the only one you know, right. so you're the only one. No, I, I'm the only one you're talking to. <laughs> but all of us worked really well as a team, including most of the time the Fish and Wildlife Service working together to craft the best recovery criteria that we thought would actually be something that they could sign and they could implement in reality and in, in the wild. There were other people pushing for recovery criteria and recovery plan constructed in a way that could, could never be achieved. And the animals would be forever on the endangered species list. And I don't know if that was their intent, but it certainly would have been the outcome. And so we battled to, to have a practical, reasonable, pragmatic um, solution to, to recovering wolves, but not letting them run roughshod on native wildlife populations and livestock operations. So based on all that, they were really good at projecting what year or how far down the path the Northern Rockies herd or uh, packs would reach the delisting number. Is it even possible to make any type of crystal ball projection of when you'll meet your delisting criteria? We had in the recovery plan we did that. I don't remember what the date was, but we since 2009 the Mexican wolf population has been increasing on the average 14% per year on the average. So, you know, there's a small, this is a, a subspecies that definitely endangered and, and not anywhere near recovery yet, 
but it's it's increasing. You hear a lot of bad things in the press, but it's increasing. Uh, last year, at the end of 2017, we we recorded the highest number of minimum number of wolves out there in the landscape. We recorded the highest number of breeding pairs going into the breeding season. The highest number of adult wolves in the population. The highest number of packs that we've ever recorded. And so the. The Mexican wolf population is well on its way to recovery. It's not at it yet, but um, there's there's a lot of uh, a room for optimism in, in what's, what's going on out there. Yeah. One of the other things you guys have is you have the White Mountain tribe. Right. You have the San Carlos tribe. And, San, and the White Mountain has been very instrumental and, and been our partners in recovery. Okay. I was wondering about that. Yep. Are, they, are they just saying you guys do what you're going to do no. or are they... The, the White Mountain's been real involved in, in uh, the on-the-ground, what we call the interagency field team and all the things that they do on the ground. Well, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. So sounds like you guys got it pretty well coordinated, Jim, but how, well, how, how does a guy like me who's now a skeptic <laughs> get comfort that someday we'll be able to say that the state of Arizona and the state of New Mexico get to manage wolves as a recovered population? Are managing wolves. I, that's, I mean, that's not just my hope. I do believe that we will get to that point. There was going to be a lot of ugliness in between here and there, I'm afraid. And a lot of attorneys are going to make yeah, a lot of money. There will be, but there's nothing you can do about that. People say, well, how do you know, how do you know that um, when you read the recovery criteria, you're not going to be three times, four times higher than that? We don't know that, but you just craft the best plan you can, and then you deal with it with science at every step of the way and, and do your best. Wow. You think the Endangered Species Act is if litigation continues on grizzly bears, if we have a train wreck in the Southwest, my gut, my worry is that the good parts of the ESA are going to, the old throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because I look at what's going on in Congress right now. I have no idea, you know, what will happen along those lines. I, my experience and my whole career wasn't dealt, wasn't dealing with the ESA. It was all deer and ungulates and, and big game and small game up until about eight or nine years ago when I, when I entered the Mexican wolf world. But my experience just in, the, in that time I've been involved in it, it, I'm just struck with the inefficiency of the Endangered Species Act. I mean, not that it's, that it's broken and it's all bad, but it's just it, we don't seem to, the number of species that have been listed and the and very small fraction of those that have ever been delisted. And like the Mexican wolf, uh, as, a, as a case study, in, in 1982, the recovery plan was written, and they've had four recovery plans since then, four re- not recovery plans, four recovery teams that have been assembled since then to revise the recovery plan and make it a real recovery plan because they didn't even think you'd be recovered back then. And, and they all failed, and then we finally had to just get people together in this series of workshops and, and write the plan. Hmm. And so that kind of, and decades pass while we're trying to do that, and so that kind of inefficiency to actually get something going and get animals recovered and delisted and move on. We've got so many species that need our help. It's crazy that you would have 5,000 wolves in the Western Great Lakes area and people, scientists or or people in in academia writing scientific papers saying that they're they're still in danger of extinction. They shouldn't be delisted. We need to delist those animals that, that are abundant and no longer in danger of extinction and move on and use those funds and those efforts for some other animals that really do need us. Yeah, which... Uh, grant me the the moment of uh, <laughs> how I'm going to say this. Uh, I'm I'm going to say some things here that I'll probably get some heat over. And I, you you're not these are not the words of Jim. Okay, I'm going to recuse myself for okay. the next few minutes. But <laughs> I know of an endangered rattlesnake in New Mexico. 
nobody's out promoting the cause of that endangered mm-hmm. rattlesnake. I know I could sit here and list. If you go to the Federal Register and look at all the listed species, it's only the furry, cuddly, big uh-huh. money ones that seem to get litigated mm-hmm. or right. seem to have a rallying cause with 14 supposed nonprofit advocates litigating on yep. their behalf. It, yep. So, there's, no, there's no doubt the large carnivores are just iconic species, and, and they just garner this, this huge groundswelling of advocacy, and, and, and people that don't ever want them to, in their eyes, fall, fall into the evil hands of the state wildlife agencies. But Arizona Game and Fish manages 800 different species, and we manage other carnivores. We manage black bears. We manage mountain lions. We manage bobcats. We manage all these other carnivores, coyotes, these other canids even, and foxes. We do a fine job of that, but somehow... People just don't believe that wolves could ever be managed by a state agency. And that, you know, as a biologist, it doesn't make any sense. Wolves are just larger carnivores, just like coyotes. In fact, Mexican wolves aren't a whole lot bigger than coyotes. They're not that different as far as managing their populations. But they, they have this huge empathetic uh, following uh, of people that they, want, they just want to lock them up and protect them forever. And that's not realistic. We need to move on to some other endangered species. Yeah, and I struggle with how do you get there? How, how do you get people to understand? Or is it just a mindset that, you know what? I don't like, quote, unquote, management. Uh-huh. I, I don't want management. I want unmanagement. Or right. I want the entire landscape to be managed, but only through the lens of species that makes my heart flutter. Right, and, and people people are okay with people shooting a deer and taking it home and eating it, but those same people may just not ever want uh, a wolf to ever be shot because it's a problem animal or as part of an annual harvest, a uh, part of a you know, wolves have a harvestable surplus too when their populations get up, just like deer. I I wonder if people understood how many wolves were being removed in the Northern Rockies by. <laughs> <laughs> while they were endangered, right? Yeah, yeah, while they were still listed. No, I, yeah. I, they, they may not, but that was that effort to remove those problem individuals to, to just maintain some tolerance on the landscape. If you didn't do that, it, it just it would be a disaster. And it, yeah. and it would be in, in, uh, in the, the Southwest with Mexican wolves. Some people talk about, well, if you look at what percent of the cattle are preyed on by wolves, and it's a terribly small percent, but that, that's not the metric. That's not what's important. What's important is the one rancher that just lost 14 head of cattle from one wolf in one pack. And so that's not looking at it right when you look at the percentages. We have to be able to uh, recover these animals, but be able to react to those kind of situations. So we're not putting four generation ranchers out of business just because there's one or two problem wolves. We need to be able to remove those bad actors and maintain tolerance on the landscape. For the, co- for the entire cow. For the it, entire it, population, right. Yeah. If you get enough people, you get just a couple people that are incurring a lot of damage and they start talking to their ranchers and they start talking to their senators, pretty soon you've got People, you've got politicians that are passing bills to defund the entire Mexican wolf recovery program. There, there's been some bills that have come through that have just said, no, we're going to strike all the money for wolf recovery. And that's a disaster for, for everybody. And so, so there's maintaining tolerance among the people living with wolves is incredibly important to just continuing to recover them. Yeah, it's, and, if there's a lesson that I saw unfold in the Northern Rockies wolf thing, and I'm seeing it in the grizzly bear thing. NPR radio had a really good article about a week ago about grizzly bears on the Rocky Mountain front of, of north, north and 
central northwest Montana, how there's all these private landowners up there who are ag producers or whatever. Grizzly bears never disappeared from that part of Montana. Never. And they these private land stewards have been remarkable in their conservation efforts. And they've tolerated and they've tolerated and they've tolerated. They're now getting to the point of saying, mm. you know what, I'm out. Yeah. Get, get me out of this. I, I didn't, this is so much more than I ever bargained for. And as a yeah. result, we are going to lose the conservation, whatever you want to call it, the, yeah. the incentive for these people to continue to be so engaged in conservation mm-hmm. for no real good reason. Right. Now they're not the only ones with grizzly bears. Now there's a lot of grizzly bears, and, and they're not holding the line, so to speak, in that area. Right. So I, I worry that in the long run, excess litigation and, and lack of uh, promises being kept, or maybe I should say the abundance of promises not being kept or being broken, causes people, landowners, very important parts of these equations. Uh Egg producers, landowners, local groups are very, very important to these recovery efforts. They are. And when you hand all the power to people who don't have to live with Mm -hmm. the the consequences or haven't changed their lifestyles Mm -hmm. as a result. Doesn't affect them at all. Right. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the the ability to ever get anything off the list goes right. goes away. Right. I, I look at grizzly bears. I don't ask me why Governor Mark Roscoe decided Randy Newberg was worthwhile to be put on the five member uh, group from Montana. We had the they called it the Governor Grizzly Bear Roundtable. Five from Montana, five from Idaho, five from Wyoming, and it was to help the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service craft the Greater Yellowstone conservation strategy so for almost three years we every quarter would meet for two days in one of the three states in the greater yellowstone region so i got a lot of time invested in yeah and i i look at where the landscape was and what the allowed landscape uses were before this conservation strategy was put into effect and how much locals have changed they've changed what allowed landscape uses are. They've changed uh, things that affect jobs, like motorized travel, like logging. Like There's so many things that locals have done that someone living outside of the area has no idea comparing the allowed landscape uses 25 years ago compared to what are the allowed landscape uses today. And these are all locals who are saying, you know what, I'll do my part. Uh-huh. I, I'm going to change my ways. I'm, I'm going to do this for proper food storage. We're going to do this as it relates to closing this area to whatever for this time of year. And they, these are real changes people are making. And they feel like, all right, I'm doing my part. And then a judge says, yeah, you're doing yeah. your part, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that, there's, there's a lot of people that get put, I think, on recovery plans that don't they don't have to speak to the public at all. They they don't have to be accountable for any of those decisions. And they want they try to craft recovery plans and and all sorts of things related to that in a vacuum to be like the gold standard with no no thought at all about what that how it's going to be implemented on a working landscape. And 
like you say, it's the, it's the private landowners and it's the people who are using the landscape. They have to be engaged. The stakeholder is not just a word we throw around. I mean, they, they have a stake in that and they have to be part of that, that process. So I hear all the rumblings and this is getting out of Jim's area <laughs> here. And I don't want to put you out on thin ice, but we hear all these rumblings about Colorado needs to have reintroduced gray wolves. Right. I, there's a guy who's an elected, an elected person from my state who works for the Turner Endangered Species Fund. Everyone will know who it is. Mm-hmm. He's been going to Colorado telling people, you know, we're going to, we, we need this, we need right. that. And as somebody who's watched it unfold, this is like Yogi Berra's deja vu all over again. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is 1991, 1992, Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in another one of these public meetings in Bozeman, Montana, hearing same group, same types of people doing the same thing, making the same promises yep. and hoping that the good folks of Colorado aren't going to look and see how things Pay transpire. no attention to the man behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah, that whole effort is a strong marketing campaign to bring wolves back and bring wolves to, to Colorado. And my concern from a Mexican wolf standpoint is is bringing these Canadian, these wolves of Canadian origin of the Northern Rockies, putting a whole bunch of big Canadian origin wolves in the middle of, of, of Colorado, that's within a couple days walking distance of Mexican wolves. We've already had them come from Yellowstone down to Northern New Mexico and Northern Arizona. Having a whole, right now, having a whole bunch of big Canadian wolves in Colorado would again be disastrous for that Northern fringe of the, the our Northern population, the Mexican wolves. So I think, I think, Right now, having big Canadian wolves in Colorado is not a good thing for Mexican wolf recovery. And so looking at it from a Mexican wolf standpoint, um, for the reasons I talked about before with genetic swamping, I'm concerned about that. Do you think you would, if Colorado starts getting momentum to that direction, do you think you'd have any, you'd be able to make the case that, hey, what you guys are thinking of doing is really going to mess up yeah, we actually, work. I, I could, we would just cite the paper. We recently cited, we recently wrote a, a paper that was published in, in Biological Conservation, which is one of the, the leading prestigious scientific journals, and it was called The Perils of Recovering Mexican Wolf North of Historic Range, and it talked about uh, the genetic swamping. It talked about all of these things, published in a peer-reviewed journal, and so that information is out there. It, it, I'm sure people are, are trying to ignore it and, and not paying attention to it, but we've laid out in, in a a, a really good comprehensive paper, all of the problems of recovering Mexican wolves too far north, and that and that same thing applies to bringing big Canadian wolves down too far too south. Too far south, huh? Well, I almost want to go to Colorado and start saying, "Hey, someone read this because you guys are <laughs> headed down a path here, I, iceberg dead ahead." Is what right. I, I feel right. like they're in the Titanic, and the, everyone knows yeah. the icebergs there, and. It, but, and the I, things that I've heard, you say some of the promises being made in, in, in some of the public meetings, and a lot of the things that I've heard in the effort to, to um, bring wolves to Colorado or to get people to, to want wolves in Colorado, a lot of those things, I've, I've heard a lot of statements about wolves are not going to be a problem at all for the livestock industry. Wolves are not going to be a problem at all for any areas of, of native game like elk. And, and they're making just bold right. statements like that. And the people making them know better because they've been involved in this wolf recovery business for a long time. And we need to be honest to people and say, you know, in some pockets, there can be some impacts to some individual population of elk. Wolves don't move in and decimate the whole statewide elk population. But there can be elk populations that, 
that might suffer some other stresses and, and additional predation causes them to decline like that. And we just need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about their impacts to the livestock industry and make sure we have some programs in place to compensate and to, to deal with that and to stand up there and say, um, the livestock industry thinks, you know, this is going to be a bad thing, but it's not. And the hunters think this is going to be a bad thing, but it's not. You can't, that's dishonest. You can't do that. Right. I, well, when you get, when your opinion and your concerns get discounted to that degree, right. instantly your trust level, again, starts uh -huh. wavering. Right. But, so I know you're a very uh, popular guy here <laughs> at this Western Hunting Expo. You guys have been doing your mule deer working groups here? We did Wednesday all day. We had all, uh, um, not all, but the people that attended the mule deer working group meeting, that's mule deer experts from throughout the West. And we had a full agenda. We met all day long and, and um, tried to solve a bunch of problems. So we, what, we did. What, we got through a lot of interesting what, things. What's the State of the Union address on mule deer in the West? Or are uh, you not comfortable? No, I can. That? As a snapshot, you can. It's like, I've said it's like asking a kindergarten teacher how her class is doing. You know, some <laughs> of them are excelling and some of them are in the corner picking their nose. And it's the yeah. same thing with mule deer populations throughout the West. Some are good, some are bad. But as a snapshot, we went through a decline in the 90s and all those populations have really recovered to some extent, but not not entirely. So a snapshot throughout the West would be population stable or increasing, but still below population objectives with, with about two states probably um, in a slight decline. Really? Is that going to be habitat? Is it it's, a multi, it's, it's a multitude of things? Yeah. It's a, in, in different geographic areas, it's a whole bunch of different things. So we get a couple dry summers in, in Arizona and a couple dry winters, and we get our population decline because we need that rainfall in the winter in the Forbes. And you get some, some heavy snow and some cold temperatures in the Rocky Mountain states, and populations decline. Black-tailed deer, Sitka black-tailed deer off the coast of Alaska, some of those islands will lose half to two-thirds of their deer population in one bad winter. So, so there's different conditions like that that affect deer populations in different areas. Wow. That's a, that, that just seems like how could a population come back from Right, it's devastating. Like you know, it's productive enough that they do bounce back pretty quick. They, you know, they, they go into this huge increase, and, then, uh, and, and they have, like Sitka blacktail in general, in the last several years have had mild winters, and they're, they're coming back. But once in a while, you get hit with this harsh winter, and it really knocks them down. So yeah, we, just an example of different effects in different populations. Yeah, we, we thought we dodged a bullet. I think it was the winter 2016, 17, when it really, Two years hit, ago, yeah. Yeah, it really hit Idaho and Wyoming. And we thought, whew, when Montana, we got through. Well, last winter, we just got Yeah, that's hammered. right. I remember two years ago that there was areas of Montana that, that weren't as bad as like Wyoming was getting hit pretty hard. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see the... The, just how hard it can be on deer, weather-related events. And you can't, you know, what, what do you do? You, yeah. it's, it's not like you, game and fish can go and grow a bunch of deer to say, well, a bunch died this winter. Let's, like, restock yep. in a lake or something. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. These aren't trout that <laughs> yep. you feed pellets to. You know, get them out of the hatchery and throw them out there. No, well, I appreciate how much work you put into all these things. Anyone who, <laughs> if you go and Google Jim Heffelfinger, and you you know you told me how to remember how to spell your name, it's yeah. got an elf in it. Elf in the middle. Yeah. E-L-F. So, Heffelfinger, you will find more research, more documents, more papers when do you sleep? And a Jim? lot of a lot of what my name is associated with as the chair of the working group is the good work of other people. I, yeah. I'm amazed, like that when Wednesday when we had that meal, their working group meeting, the the talent and the intelligence and the knowledge and the hardworking 
those people in there. It's it, it's really neat. And yeah. and we, we we go to the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, which is what the Mule Deer Working Group is attached to and sponsored by. The other committees there, the, the directors are, are so amazed at the productivity of the Mule Deer Working Group. And and all I do is is like like a general contractor, just keep things moving, <laughs> keep things moving and keep different people doing different things and doing their job. And they're all doing the work and doing some really, really cool stuff. Yeah. Well, yep. hunters are the beneficiary of that. Yes. And I, yeah. I sure and I want to put a plug you. in. Uh, my my 15-year-old kid has a uh, Instagram account that has twice as many followers than me, and he has like only seven posts. I can't figure out. <laughs> I got all this great content. So you can find me on Instagram at Jim, Jim Deere, Deere yeah. with an E at the end, like John Deere. And it looks, yeah. you can look for the John Deere logo, except I photoshopped it to be a mule deer. So <laughs> crash the boards. Try to get my, uh, I want to try to get above my 15-year-old with the Instagram account. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like seven uh, posts, and he's smoking uh, me. <laughs> uh, so your working group, you send me links to documents all the time. Yep. Is, is there a quote-unquote clearinghouse of yes. where this research is yep. hosted? Yeah, the, the WAFWA website, which is that Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, has a, a page for the Mule Deer Working Group. The, the address is con convoluted, so what we do is we established a, a pass-through URL, and if you just go to muledeerworkinggroup.com. Okay. It's It'll all redirect. one word. All one word, mule, with no missing letters, muledeerworkinggroup.com. That's the portal that takes you to all of the documents we produce. And we have fact sheets there about predation and about competition with mule deer and elk and about winter feeding and about highways and about fences and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, a lot of, and these little fact sheets are just two pages. So it's not like I'm sending you to go read a book. Um, you can, you can get up on some of the biggest issues on mule deer and mule deer conservation in the West by just scrolling through uh, that website there. Yeah. You're kind enough. You've sent me that link many times and I go out there. There's some really, really eye-opening stuff, both the, I use that uh, to my benefit when I'm hunting and some things that say, hmm, I might want to think about that and quit doing what I'm doing <laughs> in some that. of my hunting because yeah. a lot of the, especially on the food stuff, the drought cycles, uh, mm -hmm. just so many things that yeah. are uh, cause me to say, well, am I doing the right thing out when I'm out hunting based on what I read here? Yeah, I posted and, on Facebook this morning a picture of us having our meeting and mentioned that we had our meeting and and um, someone who I know posted a comment on there and, and said, yeah, what about urban deer? Are you guys going to do anything about urban deer? And, and within a minute, I flipped up the link to our urban deer fact sheet and all the information. Yeah. I think he said uh, I've been owned, I think is what he, said. <laughs> <laughs> he, he commented. But we do have a lot of good information there and a lot of that kind of stuff you might be wondering about. Huh. Well, with, uh, a lot of times we, we have species where we're talking about migratory populations. Do you have much of that in the mule deer world? I know your Utah, southern Utah deer end up in Arizona Strip, Kaibab mm -hmm. country. Right. You got the, the southern Colorado, some of those deer migrate to they places winter, Yeah, in they winter in northern New Mexico. New Mexico. Yeah, uh, it, definitely a lot. Mule deer, there's a lot of stuff being done on mule deer migrations throughout the West right now. And mule deer working groups really involved in, in uh, helping orchestrate the state wildlife agencies in implementing, if you remember last year at this expo, um, then Secretary Zinke signed Secretarial Order 3362, which was right. telling uh, the Bureau, Bureau of Land, uh, Bureau of Land Management and, and everybody in the Department of the Interior to identify and protect winter range and migration corridors. And so the states are very, very involved in the implementation of, of all of that. 
and the mule deer working group has been at the forefront of that. Yeah, because last time when you were in Montana and we had you right. on the podcast, you were up there for a migration mm -hmm. One of our conference. workshops. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Teaching biologists how to analyze data with the, the GPS collar data they have, and then talking a lot about, well, how do we take that information and actually influence policy and do something good on the ground? And yeah, we talked right before that workshop. Yeah, I saw this fall, Wyoming, or even this winter, they almost have a rock star deer up there. I can't remember. Right. They, yeah, at first it was Jet, and then Jet finally died, and now it's Mo. Mo? Oh, is Mo. that what it is? Yeah. Okay. And and I'm you... totally against naming uh, study animals, <laughs> and, I've, and I've told them that. But, but it's, it is a way to engage the public. They follow an individual deer that has yeah. a name. I still don't agree with it, but I understand that it's a hook for the public to yeah. get them For me, I, I, engaged. I drop in when I see that because I follow their Facebook or uh -huh. it's either Facebook or Instagram. I follow them. Yeah. And oh. I see those posts. I read every one of them. I know. It's, just, I know. it's interesting to read. It's, it's fun. Gives gives me something that appeals to my interest in wildlife. But mm -hmm. also, you pick up, or I do, I pick up little tidbits of what they're doing with these migration mm -hmm. studies. Mm -hmm. That's going to be important stuff right, as right, yeah. we learn more and more. Who, who would have ever thought that deer or antelope migrate in Wyoming the way they do? Right. The Red Desert to Hoback, they found a, they migrated 150 miles, which was amazing. And then they had one individual that went another 90 miles farther north. Yeah. Um, and, and so just the more of these collars and more of this research we do, the more fascinating stuff we learn. Yeah. If we had not learned that... And we just went forward from a land use planning, right? We're kind of oblivious because we just didn't know. Mm -hmm. All right. What would that have spelled for mule deer in certain parts of Wyoming? Yeah. Anytime you've got a, this long distance migration, that it it's hard for animals to migrate that long distance. Some of them, that Red Desert to Hoback 150 mile route, those animals are in transit in those transition areas four months out of the year. Yeah. And so they're not just like they're in winter range and then they zip the summer range. That, that's an important part of their habitat, important part of their annual function. And if you sever that, you're, that, whole, that population is going to suffer because they're not making that long distance movement if they don't need to. They're making it because they need to to stay healthy, stay robust, and, and, and move to areas where they get their resources. And so you can't sever something like that and think nothing's going to happen. All right. To me, when I see that, I start thinking, I wonder how many other migration patterns are out there that we mm -hmm. just haven't had the funding or yep. the time to know about. There is a lot. And, and that's part of what the secretarial order, one thing it did is it put right away put $3.3 million in state agencies' hands to get radio collars out in these areas where we thought we might have some movements and we needed to quickly learn more about them to identify. They made a bunch of money available to the states. And just last two weeks, Arizona put on most of those collars that we, we were funded. And we wouldn't have had that money if we, if we hadn't had that come through the secretarial order and through the federal agencies. Cool. So, so, so it really jump-started what we learned about those unknown areas. You're doing it in Arizona. Is it safe to say most other states are getting on board because they, they are. have the funding? They do because that funding was available to all the states. So for that research funding, 11 western states got nearly a third of a million dollars to immediately start getting collars on and learning more about these areas they didn't know. So when that secretarial order, sometimes those things are signed and they put them on a the shelf. That thing was signed and they put um, someone named Casey Stemmler in charge of implementing that. And it's been an aggressive implementation. It's been really neat for us to see cool. that kind of state-federal collaboration working together to identify big game. Who would have thought federal agencies helping so much with identifying big game habitat and corridors? It's pretty exciting. Well, 
I'm glad that they're doing it. I'm, I'm glad guys like you and your, your uh, peers and your fellow scientists have the money to do it because mm-hmm. I, I just look yeah. at how landscapes are changing so fast with right. roads, highways, developments, you, you name it. And it's not like someone says, well, I think I'm going to put a road here because that'd be the best way to screw up this migration yeah. route. Or, yeah, the county's going to approve this subdivision because we really want to wipe out this mule deer population mm-hmm. that migrates through here. Nobody do, does that intentionally. Yep. yep. But if we don't have the resources to discover that, we're, we're never going to know. Yeah, our example, our top research priority that that money was used for is we have a new interstate that's going to come and cut diagonally through Arizona, I-11. And, and so they've got the approximate path. They haven't decided on it, but they've got a couple options. And so we've got 60 radio collars that we just put out last week on mule deer, 20 in one place, 20 in another place, 20 in another place along that potential sighting route to learn more about deer movements before they put that interstate in. So we won't, we won't affect the routing of the interstate because that's wrapped up in a lot of, uh, a lot of other things. But when they have the routing, we'll know more about mule deer movements and we can plan for underpasses and overpasses and fencing um, and so that we can accommodate maintaining that landscape connectivity and those movements even with the freeway going in. So it might add some cost to the construction of the freeway, but it's way better, right. way less expensive to do that while you're building right. it than to try accommodate mm-hmm. for right. it after The it's engineers built. just build it in. If you wait till the highway goes in and you say, wait, wait, we had, we, this was a main corridor for deer. It's too late. Yeah. It's too late. You lost that. Huh. Wow. Well, Jim, a lot of I, good stuff. Going I wish on. we could stay longer. I apologize that I got started here late, but yeah, no, it's good. You're a, you're a pretty popular person. Well, I don't I, know about that. Mostly I just give them all free Dairy Queen. So they'll come and, <laughs> yeah. and they, they all know that if they come and ask to get their picture taken, I'll give them a Dairy Queen. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I've enjoyed listening to the comments of some of the people that see you. Husband and wife team came by before and the wife said, I love your show. <laughs> Husband didn't say anything, no. but, but she loved uh, your show. No, yeah, I, I don't know. Good. I, that has been a very common comment today <laughs> in, in this whole thing. I'm like... What is it that causes some of these wives or women to say, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I love listening to your podcast. And I'm like, oh, you hunt a lot, huh? No, no you're just kind of corny. <laughs> <laughs> corny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, oh, well. Well, it's fun. I, you always have fun. Yeah. Well, I appreciate all that you're doing, Jim. I appreciate, you know, the work you do for Arizona Game and Fish and the, the way that your your agency really is doing a lot of remarkable work in a in a very hostile landscape i mean right arizona right. is not the premium mule deer habitat of colorado right, or the right. premium elk habitat of montana mm-hmm. you guys are doing a lot with landscapes yeah. that could yeah, we've got some mule deer that live in an area around by yuma where you get four inches of rain a year and you may get a 12 month period with no rain no measurable rain at all so yeah, I'll try to manage the meal during that, that kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate what you do to get the word out. You obviously, when you sit here and you see all the people that recognize you, you're reaching a lot of people with a really good message. Yeah. Well, I hope that message is good, and I hope we're allowed to continue. And I hope that uh, I can get you on a podcast again. My goal someday is for me and Jim and Jim, my, yeah. the two Jim buddies I have, Bagetel and Heffelfinger, that we can go hunt November Sitka Blacktail someday. Yes, absolutely. So That's my number one bucket list, and I've told Jim that. I Jim know. says, well, when are you coming? Yeah, I know. So, so It's on me. I, I'm going to make that happen someday. 
Yep. Yeah. I'm going to make that. I, I don't know deer. how I'm going to make that happen, but someday that's going to happen because I can't, I, I, my mind thinks about just putting a microphone in front of you and Batesdale. <laughs> and anyone who's <laughs> watched our deer. content, Jim Batesdale is yeah. my buddy from Alaska with the great big bushy beard who shoots the traditional hocket mm-hmm. muzzleloader. Listening to the two of you talk deer, <laughs> you guys would nerd out be, on deer yeah. to a degree that would be <laughs> enthralling to a guy like me. You might set so. your headphones down and then go off somewhere. <laughs> I know. I could come back three hours later and you guys would just be getting started. <laughs> yep. I've known Jim for a long time. Uh, awesome. I would love that. Well, let's. Uh, I'm going to put that on my calendar someday. <laughs> so we're going to make it work. I don't know how, but someday we will. So That would be fun to do uh, it out there. Oh, it would. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you go because I see you got some guests here wanting to go to dinner with you and I've already overstayed my welcome. Yeah, no, but, I'm uh, fine. So thanks so much. Okay. Folks, thanks for listening. Uh, if I as you go out to the Mule Deer Working Group.com. Is it the Mule Deer Working Group or just Mule? No, it's, it's just Mule, Mule Deer Working Group.com. And there's and Jim Deer on Instagram. Let's let's oh yeah let, yeah let's, let's let's get you ahead of your fifteen year old. Let's beat Garrett. Every everybody <laughs> listening, if you have an Instagram account, <laughs> go to Jim Deer at Jim Deer and like him. Yeah. Follow him. Even because, if you don't like my content. Just, yeah, because well, first of all, your content's cool, but I mean one, the old guy's got to get a little love once in a while, I know right? It. I know it. <laughs> oh, folks, thanks for listening. We're going to let you go. And uh, Jim, I'm going to let you go until the next time. Appreciate your time. It's yeah. Good to be here. Yeah. Keep, keep doing what you're doing.